Um, if we got everything, all the spheres into the sphere museum, and itself <laughs> maybe was even you know spherical, and we blew it up. Our spheres no longer like no one can make a sphere anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the weird things about Armstrong's view, or anyone for that matter who holds the principle of instantiation, yeah, um, you're saying well. Uh, the existence of, of a property depends upon some object having that property, right? Mm -hmm. So sphericity exists only if there's a sphere somewhere, right? So you're saying, put all the spheres in one room, blow it up, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, what happens to the property? Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts, all the deepest thoughts, that is, in philosophy, theology, nature and life. I'm your host, Parker Case, And I always invite uh, experts in philosophy, theology, nature and life to come help me think through their ideas and what they're experts in. So uh, today is no different in this episode. I have with me Dr. Robert Garcia. He's a he's an associate professor of philosophy at uh, Baylor University. We're going to be talking about tropes. I'm really excited about that. And it's not tropes like uh, cliches or, or uh, negative statements or anything like that. It's some metaphysics. We're going to be getting in on tropes. It's going to be really, really fun. And then I'm going to try and think through uh, what an NFT is, a non-fungible token. And I'm going to uh, propose that to Dr. Garcia and see, like, what, he, what does he make of it? Is it a, is it a token? Is it a, a trope? What do we make of this? So I'm trying to do some public-facing philosophy, right? I'm trying to do that for you guys. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy that. Stay tuned to um, learn all about tropes and NFTs. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon for making this podcast happen. You guys are so huge, and so many of you have supported me on there. I appreciate it like crazy. I got my puppy in the other room. He is a product of the patrons, so I appreciate that. If you guys like this podcast, if you're top 10, um, top 5 favorite podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find a link in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. If you're listening uh, on the audio, then uh, please go ahead and leave me a five-star review, and a, uh, a comment that would be huge uh spotify or apple Podcasts, and then if you're on youtube uh, let me know what you think about this how what do you think about tropes like we're gonna be getting in deep let me know in in, in the comments that'd be huge and uh last but not least man there's so much of this uh you can join our facebook parker's pensies Ponciers uh facebook group and if you promise not to spam unrelated stuff i will let you in you can talk to a lot of the guests that i've had on the podcast so without further ado, let's bring in Dr. Robert Garcia to talk about tropes. Robert, thanks so much for uh, for coming on the podcast, man. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here, and um, I love your podcast. I think you're doing great things, and uh, kind of flattered to be be a part of it. So, man, that's awesome. That's so that's so cool. I uh, I, I heard you talk at the uh, Society of Christian Philosophers down in Florida, and I was like, man, I I have to talk with this guy because. I love what you do. I love that you go in so deep in philosophy and you apply it to your Christian faith as well. And I just, I love that. I love that intersection. Um, but you are a Christian. And so I wanted to ask, why did you want to become a professional philosopher instead of a professional theologian? <laughs> um, I never wanted to be a professional anything except for a professional cyclist when I was in high school. That was my... Okay. My goal. Wow. Yeah, uh, it didn't work out. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, one day I just woke up and I sort of realized that I was sort of on a track to being some kind of academic. 
and mm. it was too late to change course. Um, and uh, I ended up going into philosophy, um, just <laughs> following my own interests in theology and uh, apologetics, trying mm. to figure out why my professors were saying the things they were saying yeah. um, in my theology classes as an undergrad. And eventually discovered, oh, there's there's a real history here that's steeped in philosophy. And philosophy is all is where the action is at. Huh. It's where all the heavy lifting happens. And yeah. um, and so I just followed my own questions and ended up where I am today somehow. Yeah. Well, uh, so where did you do uh, your dissertation and, and what was the topic? I did it at uh, Notre Dame. Okay. And um, finished in 2009, and my dissertation was on tropes, basically. Uh, nice. uh, my advisor was Michael Lux, who's um, done a lot of work on in metaphysics and in properties mm -hmm. and uh, Platonism and so on. And uh, but I started off, uh, I did a master's degree at Talbot School of Theology. Okay. And uh, my first course in metaphysics ever was there with J.P. Moreland. And um, that's the first time I heard of tropes was in mm -hmm. his class and in reading his book. Um, and that was my introduction to topic. Oh, wow. Has he uh, like thoroughly disowned you now since you're like a, you're a trope <laughs> theorist, man? Like that's that's not. We're still uh... friends. No, okay. no. Uh, okay, that's good. Um, yeah, it's funny. We haven't had an in-depth conversation about about that, um, mm. uh, but we're still we're still good friends. And um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I'd be curious to know what he thinks of my proposal concerning tropes and divine actions. Yeah, um, especially is... since it came from his book. Yeah, you, he he sparked it for you. The the whole trope, the tr getting into tropes, at least. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I certainly don't. Um, uh, I don't go in for the kinds of tropes that he had in mind. Mm. So, um, yeah, I guess I go. I need to go talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. If it's super spicy, uh, record that, and we could we could put it on the the channel. That would be even more fun. Um, well, so I thought we could start off with some some definitions here because a lot of people are going to uh, hear tropes in like the popular, uh, you know, modern parlance. Uh, That's just a trope or something like that. Uh, this he, he's is like a cliche and usually like a negative uh, in, in, in negative rhetoric or something like that. Um, what is a trope? That's like a, a deep, a deep question. But can, can you give us like a, a huge, you know, uh, bird's eye view of what a trope is? I can try. Um... Okay. The first thing to notice is that a, that tropes um, are a theoretical posit. So um, it's controversial whether there are any tropes. Um, so when I say, when I talk about tropes, um, I'm talking about um, a way of understanding the things in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how to, it's kind of a, metaphysical explanation for the kinds of phenomena that we take ourselves to be presented with. Um, I guess that's the first thing to say. Um, yeah, tropes are not, in metaphysics, tropes are not supposed to be uh, recurring themes in literature. Um, 
that's that's a literary trope that's it's a very different kind of notion yeah. um so the one way to think of it is in metaphysics there are debates about properties and objects long-standing debates going as far back as you can go in philosophy um and so whether properties exist and what they're like um that's the the kind of room that you're in when you're talking about tropes um so a trope then uh if you think there are tropes then you think that there are properties and um that properties are among the fundamental entities they're not built up out of more basic things yeah um, and so the fundamental and their properties and to say the properties is to say that they play a certain kind of role in that yeah. property role okay hey there he is <laughs> yeah he's being a, he's being a pain right now but yeah so there's certain it's it's to um uh commit yourself to properties yeah yes um and there's a question like what does it mean to think there are properties and i think one of the most helpful things in the literature is a distinction between property roles and uh role players yeah so property roles are like explanatory roles like we need we need something to account for, and then you you point at some phenomena in the world, something that needs to be explained, and then properties are uh, deployed or appealed to or posited yeah. in order to explain the the thing that you need to explain. And, and you get um, there from like uh, indispensability type arguments, right? That's one way. Okay. So one way to get there is. By saying, well, we we can't help but quantify over properties; they're indispensable to our theories. Um, we can't paraphrase them away. We can't paraphrase away quantification over properties. Yeah. So if our, you know, if our theories are true, uh, then it looks like we're committed to properties. That's one way. Um, that's a an important way. Another more traditional way is to say, well, we have um, what's called the one over many phenomenon in the world yeah. uh, that there's a there are many things that are all the same way right so all the books behind you have the same shape right so there's a there's a one you know having that shape over the many the books uh, what what must the world be like for it to be possible for many things to be the same in some respect yeah and that's one Oh well, there's there are properties of shape. They're shape properties, and uh, to have the same shape is to have for there to be a property that's shared by all the books, for example. Yeah, and then the, yeah. the other way is a uh, it's called the many over one phenomenon, where a single thing, uh, just take your dog, uh, a single object has multiple characteristics, yeah. and it can gain and lose properties. Um, and so how is it that one thing can have many properties and gain and lose them over time and so on? I love this stuff. This is so good. I'm, I'm getting all fired up here. Um, so then in, in that discussion, you have uh, in, in those kind of classic uh, arguments, you, realists will say that means that there's these properties and they're multiply uh, instantiable. I don't think they say realizable. I think that's from philosophy of mind, but they're multiply yeah. Uh, yeah, they they inhere or are. Um, I'm trying to think through Aristotle and Plato's language. Plato says they're uh, they're they're multiply instantiable is Aristotle, and then they're exemplified. Uh, yeah. Plato language, right? But but all saying like they're 
they're shared. They can be shared by all the books. They all participate in the form of bookness, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so properties, um, if you think there are properties, then you think there are things that play these property roles, but then you have a whole bunch, many more decisions to make in terms of, you know, how you understand properties. Um, and a key sort of dividing point among those who take properties to exist is whether or not properties are shareable or repeatable. Um, or you could also think of it in terms of how to understand shareability. So um, one sort of tradition thinks that properties are shareable in the sense that uh, the very same numerically one property can be had by numerically distinct objects at the same time. Yeah. Right. So um, if all of your books have the exact same shape, then uh, there is a single property of shape uh, that's somehow shared by all those books. Um, it, it's one way to think of it is there are, when we use the word same, we can mean numerical sameness or not numerical sameness, but exact similarity. Mm. So one group of that, the first tradition I mentioned, when you use the word same to talk about the books having the same shape, they mean numerical sameness Yeah. in the same way that I would say, Hey, Parker, you and I have the same president. Right. There's just yeah. one president, um, Biden. Uh, but if I say, hey, we have the same shirt. Right. I don't hopefully mean that we're literally stuffed into a single shirt. What I mean, <laughs> is there are two shirts and uh, I'm wearing one. You're wearing the other. And those shirts are, are exactly similar. Right. Yeah. The other tradition takes sameness in that sense. And that's uh, trope theory is. Um, the, the dominant stream in that tradition. So a trope theorist would say, um, when we talk about two objects sharing a, sharing a property or having the same property, we don't mean that there's just exactly one property that somehow they both share. Rather, we mean that there are two properties uh, and those properties are exactly similar, yeah. but numerically distinct. Yeah. And each book has one. Okay, this so, is good. So does... Does the um, type token does that does that help that type token distinction here, uh, or would that just be confusing things? Um, it does help to I think introduce the concept of a repeatable property, shareable property, and um, you can count tokens or you can count types. So if I said um, if I say how many letters are in uh, my last name. You might say five, it's Garcia, right? If you're counting, if you count five, you're counting tokens, right? But there are two A's in my last name. So you might say, oh, there are four, right? You don't double count the A because we're counting right. the types of letters. Um, so that's that's an example of a type token distinction. You can talk about token letters or types of letters. Um, and if you look at the, you know, my last name has two A's in it. Um, you could say, oh, they're both instances of the type A. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And okay. uh, that's a that's a case of one over many. Right. I, I, do, does the type token, um, does that cross um, both streams, uh, numerical sameness stream and, and exact similarity stream? Is everyone going to use type tokens or is that more on the, the, the trope theorist uh, wheelhouse? 
I think it's just understood in different ways by okay. each tradition. Yeah. Okay. Um, the realist, that is someone who believes in shareable properties, uh, usually called universals, um, they'll understand or analyze the type token distinction. Um, one way they might analyze it is to say, um, well, look, there are two letter, there are two A's in my last name. Uh, we might say they're both instances of the same type, um, but sort of uh, being A uh, is a property that each has, um, and, but there's just one such property, being yeah. A. Um, so that would be a way to understand the type token distinction. You would say that tokens, um, each token of the type A um, literally shares the type, right? Okay. For a, for a trope theorist, um, types are handled in different ways. So what a trope theorist doesn't want to say is, let's, let's think about different kinds of properties like sphericity. If yeah. you have a bunch of, of billiard balls, um, they're going to say, just assuming they're perfectly spherical, uh, well, each each ball has its own shape property, the sphericity property. Um, so there are there are as many sphericity properties as there are billiard balls here. Mm -hmm. um, and those sphericity properties are merely numerically distinct. They're exactly similar, but there are many of them. Um, now, if you ask the trope theorist, well, what accounts for the fact that all of these tropes are the same type of trope, right? right? What makes it the case that these sphericities are all sphericities? Um, the usual answer is to say uh, nothing does. It's a primitive fact, right? Mm -hmm. It sort of follows from uh, more basic facts about each trope. It's primitive. This trope is primitively spherical. This other trope is primitively spherical. So it just follows that yeah. there are multiple spherical tropes. Can't go back any further. It's primitive. Stop asking. What they don't want to do is say, well, there's a universal, namely, you know, it could be described as being a sphericity property mm -hmm. <laughs> or being a sphericity trope. And uh, you don't want to say, well, each trope, each of these sphericity tropes um, has the very same universal you know, being a sphericity yeah. trope, because then that would just give up on trope theory. Yeah. So they're not going to go up a level. Most trope theorists aren't going to have both universals and tropes. Okay. Uh, okay. There's, there's another way to do it. And it's Douglas Ehring's way. And it's to say, well, it's not a primitive fact about each trope that it is the trope that it is rather um, say a sphericity trope is a sphericity trope in virtue of belonging to um, a class of mm. tropes where the class is primitively a natural class. Okay. Um, it's a more complicated view um, and it's not the normal way. It's not the traditional trope theory that does that. Well, I wonder the if usual so, way, well, the usual so, way is to say it's primitive at the level of tropes. So the class, uh, Ehring's, Ehring's way is to, to posit a class, and that's to go one step further in explanation, which is cool. But then what, why why are all those things in this class? It's just brute. Okay, that is the brute. That's, yeah. yeah. I'm always, yeah. just accept it. That's how it is. 
Okay. Yeah, I, you know, and he, you know, he has his reasons for thinking that's on the whole uh, a better theory than uh, somebody like Heath Campbell or Anna Sophia Marin or Donald Williams, who would take um, the character of an individual trope to be primitive. Okay. Yeah. Okay. For Erring, it's not primitive. It's it's uh, a trope. Is the trope it is in virtue of belonging to a class, and um, it's at the level of those classes that the explanation stops. Does it? Um, I know, like grounding language is really fun nowadays. Everyone likes grounding. Is it grounded in that class? Is that like um, we're going to get into the modifier tropes uh, and module tropes? And it seems like they kind of have tropes, kind of have like powers to do things, depending on which. I think actually uh -huh. both of them would have powers. But where would that trope, uh, on Erring's view, where would it get that power from? Like, if it's how does the class like confer the power? of a sphere trope to make something spherical. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, the kind of grounding, it's not efficient causal. Okay. Right. So it's a, it's just a, a grounding that's understood in terms of metaphysical explanation or something. So the, it's it's not the case that the set somehow um, in an efficient causal sense does something to its members these tropes okay, right? okay. Um, I mean if you're if you're going in for properties um, in the traditional sense then you're 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 already going in for this kind of relationship this grounding this character grounding relationship yeah that's not an efficient causal kind of relationship um and so for airing it's the the set that confers the, the it's the set that grounds the nature and even the identity of its members that okay. these are all sphericity tropes because they belong to this natural class okay yeah, someone should should come out with an idea that like maybe God uh, confers uh, on the on the trope. That'd be really nice. If, if that would be cool. Confers. Somebody should write that up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm for those who are listening. Uh, uh, Robert's done that, so um, it's really really cool stuff. And we're gonna get into that. Um, okay, so we got we got tropes. They are. Uh, I just grabbed. I read like five year pieces uh, for this. So I, I'm sorry. I don't know where they all come from, but the quotes I pull and stuff. But uh, tropes are unshareable properties, particularized properties. No, uh, unlike a universal, a trope cannot characterize multiple non-overlapping objects at once. So, like a, you have this. This book has this trope of uh, rectangularness, and that one has that one, and they are uh, not exactly similar. Uh, they're exactly similar, but they're distinct, right? Numerically distinct. Yeah. Numerically distinct. I, okay. Yeah. They're not qualitatively different. Yes. They're merely I, numerically distinct. Yeah. Okay. This is so good, man. This is this is helping me level up. Um, and then there's this there's this this next distinction is so cool. And I first heard about it from uh, Brandon Rickabaugh when he was on the podcast, and he hits me with mod uh, module trope and modifier trope, as if like I should know that. And it rocked my world on the podcast. I was like, dude, I can't even interpret what you're saying right now. And uh, but then after reading some of your work here, and I heard you at SCP, um, 
that makes sense to me now. So I'm really pumped to uh, bring this out to the to the audience. Can you help us? Like, what, what's a modifier trope, and how is that different than a module trope? Sure, I can try. Um, so the first thing is to like um, put on the table the general concept of a trope, which we've mm -hmm. talked about, but just think about it. It's so it's a it's a fundamental entity, so it's not built up out of other things. It grounds the character of objects. Um, and it's non-shareable, right? So if um, it can ground the character of only one object at a time. Okay. Right? So it's it's fundamental, it's a property, it's non-shareable. Um, that's the, the kind of key concepts inside of it, for the constituent concepts of the concept of a trope. Yeah. Um, so when you think about... Um, an ordinary case, like you have a billiard ball or you have several billiard balls and you say, well, they're all spherical. So the trope theorist is going to say um, that each ball has its own sphericity. Um, so there are as many sphericity properties as there are billiard balls. Um, so the, the distinction between module tropes and modifier tropes, the best way to get a handle on it is by, by examples. Mm. Um, and I'll explain why I think that's the best strategy in a moment, but, um, so you can just ask of a, of a, about a sphericity trope. You say, so the sphericity of the ball, which, um, is not the same thing as the ball. It, it grounds the character of the ball. It's sort of that in virtue of which the ball is spherical. Um, that trope, is it itself spherical or not? Right. Um, and if you say that the trope is itself spherical, then, um, then it's what I call a module trope. If you say, no, no, uh, the sphericity trope is not itself spherical. It's the ball that's spherical. Then you have a modifier trope. Yeah. Um, now you can, you can also think of this in terms of whether the, whether or not properties are self-exemplifying, um, and the debate over self-exemplification goes way back to Plato. Hmm. And I prefer not to explain the module modifier distinction in terms of self-exemplification only because the concept of self-exemplification is not a pre-theoretical concept. Hmm. Um, and uh, you can it can be misleading as well. Okay. Um, so, but let's let's go back to the concept of a module trope and and um, think about what that would mean. So, can, can I can I drag you down a little bit? It's just into the yeah, morass. Please. Into the morass. Uh, okay. Uh, correct me here, uh, but a self exemplif self exemplification when it comes to like a universal, if a universal is self exemplifying, it'd be like the form uh, or the universal of a triangle is itself triangular, right? Yes. It, it's self exemplifying, or like the the form of goodness is good. Uh, it just, it's got like an arrow that turns back on itself. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And it's, it's, so the reason I don't like to use, I don't like to put much weight on the concept of self-exemplification is precisely because we picture this arrow, you know, <laughs> where it's sort of like something sort of painting itself. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, so hold that thought. So a module okay. trope, then, uh, let's just keep 
with the example of sphericity, um, if a sphericity trope is a module trope, then the trope is itself spherical. Yeah. Okay. And it's primitively spherical. So it's not spherical in virtue of some process or, you know, some action that it does to itself, right? Yeah. It's, it's better just to say, I think, that a module trope is primitively charactered um, in some way. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you could think of a module trope then as being primitively uh, charactered in some specific way. So a sphericity trope would be primitively spherical. Okay. And it's to say it's primitively spherical means it, it just is spherical and there's, there's no deeper explanation. Because then you get this regress, right? Because then you'd need another spherical trope in order to do that. Yeah, there's not, it, there's not another trope inside of it yeah. that grounds it's being spherical. Right? Okay. Yeah. Um, so one one helpful view to, as a foil to keep on the table is called austere nominalism. Mm -hmm. You know, an austere nominalist thinks, um, look, we don't we don't need properties. We don't need to postulate the existence of properties. Instead, we just take objects to be primitively charactered, right? So each book on your shelf would be primitively charactered the way that it is, right? You don't try and explain it in terms of there being properties per se. Right? Yeah. So that's, a, that's roughly austere nominalism. The trope theorist, in a way, deploys the same strategy but at the level of tropes. Um, the difference is supposed to be that uh, the austere nominalist sort of takes the character of ordinary objects to be primitive, mm -hmm. but the character of ordinary objects is thick, right? It's So ordinary objects are multiply character. Like yeah. They have mass and shape and so on. Um, and so they take, what I call thick character to be primitive. The module trope theorist wants to take each trope to be thinly charactered, right? Yeah. It's just charactered in one way um, and that's primitive. So what's primitive then is not thick character, but thin character. Yeah. So each module trope is primitively thinly charactered. That's so good. And Oh man, that's so good. That's really, really helpful. That that was that just yeah, really helped. The other thing to add though is that um the kind of character we're talking about is um probably best called natural character. Right. Okay. So not so for example, if you said, Well, look, um any entity whatsoever has the property of being self-identical, of existing, right? Yeah. So you can come up with lots of um predicates that are satisfied by any given object. Mm -hmm. um, but, and so you could say about a module trope, well, um, how can it be only charactered in one way being spherical? After all, it's also um, self-identical, right? It's my favorite oh. trope. Like you can yeah. describe it in lots of ways. Right. Um, and so, you know, in the literature, there's this, distinction between you know natural and non-natural character um and uh 
the way to think about a module trope is in terms of natural character. Whatever the you know whatever the fundamental joints are in nature, you know the most basic kinds of character, whether it's mass or charge or whatever it turns out to be. Yeah, the module trope theorist is going to say. Um, at the ground floor, there are tropes, each one of which is is charactered in only one of those ways. Mm. Yeah. So that's in those I natural mean, that, ways. Yeah, it's it's, yes. it's their natural character, and that's that's really the one that. See, that's why self exemplification might come back and help. It's uh, the natural character is the one that's self exemplified by that yeah. trope. Yeah, it's, that, that module trope. Yeah, a module trope is. Um, Primitively, naturally, singly, character, and it and it has these extra ones just in virtue of everything having those extra ones. Like it's identical with itself in those things, but that's not that's not nat. It's tricky. Yeah, it's not I natural. Mean, I, yeah, yeah. I don't. Um, I myself don't go in for module tropes. Yeah, precisely uh, because I think there are problems lurking here. Okay. Um. Yeah, so one thing you could say is, well, why don't we need, um, how do we make sense of this distinction between natural character and whatever we call the other one, non-natural character? Yeah. Um, why, you know, how do we account for the fact that multiple objects are all the same with respect to being self-identical, right? Right. Um, and so, you know, one move is to say, well, if every entity whatsoever has is a certain way, then you don't need to postulate a property per se to account for it. It's just a, it's just a, a feature yeah. that something has in virtue of existing. There's uh, a, there's a line in, in the Incredibles movie where uh, the villain says, if everyone's special, then no one is. And right. It's like, yeah. 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 yeah it doesn't need an explanation. Like why? Right. Um, or the explan the need for an explanation is much less pressing, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, the other move to make is to say that certain features come with certain categories. So the category of everything in the category of trope has certain features like, I should say features and scare quotes, right? They're, okay. they're um, but better, better to say every entity that's a trope satisfy certain predicates that is certain things are true of it primitively so sure right like being a trope yeah <laughs> or you know whatever you want to say about all the tropes uh you get those for free okay yeah um and you know whether that works out in the end i don't know but um yeah mundane characters or something like that someone could come up with a good name for it yeah, they're kind of formal features i i think i use that phrase okay. like they're natural character and then there's formal character formal character is like being self-identical or um being such as to be um i don't know uh think about these weird disjunctive properties that you can just <laughs> come up with at will um yeah. everything satisfies them but that doesn't mean we need a property per se to account for those right things okay this is so that's so the good. module trope. We I yeah. don't know. Are you ready to move on to the next? I, I am. I, I just I thought we should do 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 diligence. There we go. It's almost out there. Um, and it uh the 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 Incredibles quote might have been if everyone's super. Uh, some of my fans <laughs> or listeners will will hit me on that. Um, yeah, that's 
I mean, I'm with you. So you you taught me about this. I learned from you. So I'm like, yeah, I'm not. I don't go in for for module tropes. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't say they're crazy, probably, but um, I'm with no, you. I, so yeah, yeah. So so modifier tropes are like where it's at. Like I, I'm I'm with you on that. So let's let's jump in on them. Well, one more thing about module tropes. That yeah. So there's a sense in which the concept of a module trope. Um, I don't want to say it's trivial, but it's becomes a, almost an empirical issue. So ah. could there be a world where there are entities that, so better, could there be a world where um, the natural character in that world is different from the natural character in our world? So maybe a world where there's no mass or charge or spin, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, but just some other kind of, uh, where the, the natural character there is very different from what's natural here. Yeah. Um, but in this other world, it's possible for an object to have just one dimension of natural character, right? To be charactered in exactly one, one way in the natural sense. I don't think we can rule that out. Okay. And so I, there's a sense in which it's just like, well, it's module tropes. I think a module trope is a is a possible kind of entity. Okay. Um, yeah, and uh, so if you go in for like possible worlds and stuff, there 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 could be a possible world where it's just module tropes. Yeah, how can we rule that out? I mean, yeah, that there could be a world where there are entities there that are, with respect to natural character just only naturally charactered in, in one way. Suppose yeah. there's some world that has, I don't know, six types of natural character, right? Yeah. Um, and every object in that world uh, has only one kind of natural character, uh -huh. right? They would be, on my way of defining it, they would all be model tropes. Okay. <laughs> That's wild. But but it's and it it may be yeah it it's a possibility, yeah I like that. I mean, th what's controversial really about module tropes, I think, is <clears throat> what they're good for, what they can do. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's the for me. What's difficult about module tropes is whether they can do what they're supposed to do in with the character that we find in our world. Um, yeah, and given what's natural um whether they're coherent or yeah. not yeah yeah so in a in a in another possible world there's a, a robert garcia who's thinly charactered himself who maybe just is a trope and he's and he's doing all the work with these tropes right now well i don't know if i could be a trope but uh yeah so uh, there's a, sure. one of my one of my former guests uh he's been on a few times josh siduade uh argues uh -huh. that that god is a trope ultimately and I don't quite understand what he means by that. I need to listen back on our on our stuff. But yeah, yeah, I, I don't understand that claim either. Um, the only way I can understand it is that um, if God is metaphysically simple, mm -hmm. um, and there are a number of distinct truths you know, about God or distinct uh -huh. predicates that God satisfies, then, you know, uh, 
we think of God in the way that a austere nominalist thinks about ordinary objects. Um, yeah. But in that case, um, it just, I don't think it'd be true that God is only singly naturally charactered. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of the application there. I need to, yeah. I should talk to you more about it. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can make that happen too. I mean, I'm sorry, Josh, for not being able to represent your view better. But <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited um, to look at it more. Yeah. Yeah. He's awesome. So um, he's okay. Uh, okay. So let's get in on, on modifier tropes. We got modules that are, you know, I'm sorry, but they're, they're self exemplifying. And I know you don't like that, but we just talked about it. So everyone just listen to that. Now we got this other thing that's different. It's a modifier. It, it yeah. I don't want to steal the thunder here. So yeah. Yeah, it's it's just um, so it's a non-shareable property um, that does not have the natural character that it grounds in yeah. its bearer, right? So, yeah. if a sphericity trope is not itself spherical, then it's a modifier trope. Yeah, yeah. And what's peculiar about modifier tropes is, um, so unlike a module trope where you could say, oh, the trope is itself such and such a way. It's naturally yep. such and such a way. It's itself spherical. You can't say that about a modifier trope. Um, instead, you just say, well, it's it's something that makes something else spherical, right? Yeah. Where the making is not efficient causal, it's grounding. Okay. Uh, so um, that's that's the way to think about a modifier trope. Um, it doesn't have the character that it grounds. Um, if you want to say it's non-self-exemplifying, that's fine. Uh, yeah. That's um, so it's it, it's hard to know what kind of character it actually has. Yeah, itself. that's my next one. Yeah, you that's know. my next question. That's one of the the worries about the concept of a modifier trope is it looks like it's a functional concept in the sense that we're we're sort of told what it does or can do but with respect to the trope itself um well it's non-shareable it it accounts for or you know grounds the character of other objects um it's i mean you on most trope theories um tropes are contingent entities and so on but okay um you know we don't get very close to what it is in itself um and I think that's a weakness, hmm. not a fatal fatal flaw. But um, it, you know, we're not told what the what the trope itself is like. We're yeah. just told what it does. Yeah. And at first, I thought that was kind of weird. Um, but now I'm thinking, you know, what if they? Yeah. What if they're all like green or something? Or what if they all have some particular property or a, a trope grounds all all of them, and we just can't see it because we don't see the tropes? It's like a metaphysical concept. It could be whatever, but we see we we use them because of the the function that they perform. Like we see their action there, and I think I don't know a ton about electrons, but I wonder if you could do the same kind of thing where you're like, oh, we see the electron by its by its function, we see it by wow. what it what it does, and so it's a similar type of concept. I can't tell you everything about it, but I can tell you what it what it does, and so we should postulate that they're there. I, I'm sympathetic to that. I okay. I, I think you're right that. Um... We sometimes don't get much more than a functional concept. Yeah. You know, um, 
it's, uh, you know, it'd be nice to, to know more about the thing itself. I think if, um, you know, if, if the only difference between two theories is that one has its basic entities are only functionally described and the other one can say more about the intrinsic nature of the, the things. I think the latter view seems to have an edge and advantage. Yeah. 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 And you could, you could kind of cheat a little bit and say, well, we can't say some things about them. We can say all the, uh, all the formal characters. It's identical with itself. Right. And we got some stuff that we got going on. Just not as far, I guess, as the, the module folks would say. Yes. Yeah. Though that concept's kind of, that has its own problem. So maybe we don't want that. Uh, it seems like we don't want that. Yeah. Yeah. The thing to keep in mind about a modifier trope is that it's, it's a characterizer. That is, it, it hmm. makes something else yeah. charactered, right? So, and this is the intu- intuition behind modifier tropes is you say, well, look, it's, it's the ball that's spherical, right? Like the, the property itself. Why, why would you think the property itself is spherical? Right. Um, and, and you can really get this going if you think about other kinds of properties like courage. You know, like being courageous. Is, is that itself courageous? I mean, right. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, there are lots of properties that make that are hard to make sense of if you think of them as being self-exemplifying. Yeah. Um, triangularity, right? Yeah. Um, but the many of the arguments for trope theory uh, over against like realism where we have universals, um, many of those arguments sort of assume that tropes are module tropes. Um, yeah. So there is an there is an intuition going in the other direction, and the intuition is something like, "Well, look, um, I can see the the color of the object, right? Yeah. Um, aren't I seeing the whiteness of the screen? Or um, it looks like properties, and one way of thinking about it are what we're directly aware of, right? Right. right. Or if somebody is, you know, well, what burned your hand? Well, the, the, it was the the temperature of the stove, right? The hotness of the stove burned by hand. Right. It looks like you're you're taking the property of the, the, the temperature, the hotness, if you will, to um, be the thing that caused you know the burn on your hand. Yeah. Um, for those arguments to work, at least I've tried to argue, um, you need to think of tropes as being module tropes. Um, so if, if hotness is a modifier trope, then the trope itself is not hot. Not hot. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So you can't, so, yeah, you can't get burned by a modifier trope. You get burned by whatever it's modifying to make hot. Right. Yeah. It's the stove that's hot in virtue of having the trope. Yeah. Um, it's not the trope. That's the hot thing. Um Yeah. Well, can you have can you have both, or is that if you had like a principled way to say we got both here, can you have both in one paradigm? I mean, you could try it. Um, <laughs> I there are people who, who, um, like David Robb, I think he has both on his view. Okay. Um, you know, he doesn't call it. He doesn't use the distinction. Um, but I, I don't think it. Uh, is advantageous to try and have both. Okay. Um, 
I think you end up with a kind of the you know you lose the advantages of each and you gain the weaknesses of both kind of problem you know yeah yeah um, that stinks yeah well so uh, yeah. how would a how would a how would a realist uh, describe heat would they say that the property of heat is being you know uh, realized or uh, it inheres in the stove or it's participating in heatness to a, a certain degree i mean the 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 realist that is someone who believes in universals they face the same dilemma if you will between okay. whether or not universals are self-exemplifying or not yeah um and i actually my own view is that realists have not sort of been explicit about this hmm. at least recently you know in plato it's like a big problem you know whether or not the forms are are self-exemplifying or or paradigmatic or not yeah um that was like a major criticism um of plato's forms uh, but if you look at D.M. Armstrong, for example, sure. kind of like the the 20th century leading advocate for universals, mm -hmm. um, it is extremely difficult to figure out whether his universals are self-exemplifying or not. Okay. It's, you have to kind of make an educated guess. And I my educated guess is that they're not self-exemplifying. Um, uh, but it's not just crystal clear and you would ex it's kind of surprising that you know for someone who's written so much about universals um it's not part of the sort of uh explicit description right yeah that you wouldn't yeah. have to just guess you know um so i i think that realists face the same choice and um uh in a sense it the advantages parallel the advantages and disadvantages of tropes okay. um, on the choice point. Um, we might have to, uh, I don't know, maybe there's already language for it, but yeah, using the, the module and modifier language could be helpful in, in that, to, in that conversation as well with amongst realists. Yeah. I think, you know, if you think of universals as being self-exemplifying, then um, you might just call them paradigmatic universals okay. or paradigms um and then my colleague Anne marie schultz suggested the label merely formal for universals that are oh, okay non-simplifying they're just um and it's funny i asked her she's a plato scholar and i said um so you know we use this word paradigm for platonic forms that are self-exemplifying they're paradigmatic um what what do we call the other ones on the other view that aren't self-exemplifying and you know there's not like a ready to go label for it there, yeah. there should be i guess but yeah her suggestion was that we call them merely formal, merely uh, formal. so that's why that's what i've been calling them okay yeah i see but, that. Yeah, the place is the same choice yeah and i see the i see the work and the the problems that both have uh because it's it's counterintuitive to think there's just heat out there in Plato's realm that's just hot. It just is hot right now. And especially if you go in for theistic uh, conceptualism of any stripe, now you have right. like God, a part of God's mind. And if you toss in simplicity too, is just hot, you know. And if if heat, um, uh, if like your colleague uh, Dr. Ward there um, thinks yeah. that you know it's it's a it's an aspect of God that it, that's uh, being portrayed, 
then there's like an aspect of God that's really hot and another aspect that's really cold. And um, he's so awesome too. I love giving a hard time about all this stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I actually, I, I actually yeah. favor his view. So I, I heard you say um, that in the talk. That was pretty yeah. wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I like well, his view. Well, um, that brings us to like theistic conferralism. I think uh, it's a it's a natural little bridge here. Unless you had anything sure. else to say on modifiers and and module tropes. Um. Well, there's one thing. So it has to do with the distinction between modifier and module tropes. Um, is relevant for one one reason. It's relevant is because um, it has implications for how you further analyze objects, right? Yeah. So many trope theorists want to be bundle theorists oh, or they right. take ordinary objects to be mere bundles of tropes. Mm-hmm. And then the alternative to that, one of them is to go in for a kind of substance attribute view where you pair tropes with substrata basically, or, and Sometimes they're called bare particulars, yeah. substrata. Yeah, yeah. And um, my own view that I've tried to argue for is that modifier tropes uh, just don't work for a bundle theory. Um, on a bundle theory, you're supposed to say, well, an object, the billiard ball, say, is just a bundle of tropes, right? But if those mm-hmm. tropes themselves are modifier tropes. Um, then none of the tropes is itself spherical. Yeah. Um, and so what is it that's spherical? Um, hmm. It has to be the bundle. If anything, it has to be the bundle. Um, but how is it that the bundle is spherical? Um, and so the, the problem then is how do you, how do you, how do you think about what bundles are themselves such that they're, the sorts of things that can be spherical and be spherical in virtue of having a non-spherical trope as a constituent. Yeah. Um, And um, because it's tropes all the way down, right? I could see someone imagining that like, well, no, you have the tropes, which are kind of like form. And then you have like the actual matter and they character the actual matter, but you're in this view, it's, it's even the matter is tropes. It's all tropes. And it's just a bundle of all these things. Yes. Right? And so it's, it's, I think it's hard to do a bundle theory with modifier tropes. Okay. And in fact, usually find modifier tropes in a trope theory that goes in for substance or substrata as well, where it's the, the substrata is the, is that which gets to be characterized yeah. by the tropes yeah. that it has. But yeah. you can't say anything about that substrata because it has no tropes. It itself is, yeah. I mean, bare particulars are notoriously tricky to characterize. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think the best. So I think Tim Pickavance has a paper in APQ on bare particulars and exemplification that um, I think kind of clears up the usual worries about that. Okay. Um, so I just want to put in a plug for his paper. <laughs> that's great because i i uh, jp mentioned this in our philosophy of science class and just goes yeah yeah bare particulars and i'm i'm kind of uh i lean that way myself and i was like jp no what what are you what are you saying right now <laughs> um so that's really good yeah i'll, I'll check out the pick paper to help me with this 
Um, yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Well, okay, so you have uh, this theistic conferralism. And uh, Robert, is this is this original to you? I think so. Okay, nice. And I, I should ask <laughs> too about module and, and modifier. Is that is that something that, that you came up with? Is that your terminology? So the terms are mine. The concept mm-hmm. is... Um, so Mike Lux was my advisor. Yeah. And he came up with a distinction one day. Um, and he he labeled it as the distinction between tropes and tropers. Ah. Right? And, uh, um, and so I wrote my whole dissertation using this language, tropes and tropers. Okay. And, uh, it's fun. The word troper is really fun to use. Um, and, uh, and Mike's view is that, um, all the major trope theorists, uh, thought of tropes as what I call modifier tropes. Yeah. And so Mike introduced this idea of a troper, which is what I call a module trope. And uh, Mike introduced this as a new concept that he thought would solve some problems that trope theorists face. Yeah. His idea was, um, hey, you know, all the popular trope theorists like Keith Campbell and DC Williams, for example, you know, they're working with um, uh, what, what I have come to call modifier tropes. And um, they ought to consider a different notion, a troper, which is what I call a module trope. Module yeah. trope. Anyhow, um, and I wrote my dissertation kind of based on that assumption, actually. And then okay. when I finished my dissertation, soon after I realized that um, that it's a mistake, actually, that if anything, most of those trope theorists that he was referring to and that I was referring to, um, they're either ambiguous on this distinction Mm. or they actually go in for module tropes. Okay. So Keith Campbell and DC, Keith Campbell for sure had module tropes and DC Williams probably did. Um, It's tricky to say. Um, So unfortunately um, Lux's, terminology of troper and trope um didn't fit the actual literature literature um in fact most most of the trope theorists turn out to be troper theorists on mike's Uh, way of drawing the distinction so anyhow i don't know if that all made sense but yeah um, i tried to explain it in a footnote somewhere but so he he drew the distinction the, the conceptual distinction and he proposed the labels trope and troper. And that's what I worked with at first. And then I came to see, oh, this is not an apt set of labels for the concepts. Um, we need we need a better label. And so yeah. I, I just came up with modifier and module. Um, well, so mod- modifier, I totally get. makes a lot of sense. But why did you pick module? Because like a, a module is like, uh, I think you're working through something. And you have to do this module first. And then you get to the next one. Yeah, you know, it took me a while to come up with a label that I liked. And, you know, it's sort of, I got tired of coming up with ideas. So (laughs) (laughs) it's not my, it's not, you know, ideal, but the idea modifier seems like that works. 
Yeah. Module is supposed to be something like, well, it's a sort of self-contained unit. You know, ah. it's modular. It can kind of, it sort of, it stands on its own. It's sort of a, uh, it's a kind of, um, it doesn't have to relate to something else. You can kind of arrange them and stack them up and so on, but yeah. each one is kind of um, defined in its own way. But yeah. I like it. I, I get it now. I get the, the self-contained unit makes sense to me. Yeah. It's got its natural yeah. character in there. It's just this little, this little thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so finally, uh, I keep on, I kept on bringing us back to, oh, yeah. uh, and then taking us off on a, on a rabbit trail. So, uh, creaturely properties are modifier tropes and are identical with God's divine act of sustenance. That's at least in, in, uh, a couple papers that you've written. Uh, and, and you've, you've been working on it some more. You gave us, uh, you gave us a paper at the SCP. So, um, creature, when you say creaturely properties, is that like any property that's not God's property is, uh, identical with God's divine act of sustenance? Yes. I, I don't want to, uh, include God's properties if God has properties yeah. in this proposal. Um, okay. Yeah, so creaturely properties. Um, it's a theory about creaturely properties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> properties, yeah. whatever the natural properties are that creatures have. Yeah. Um, or could have. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and so uh initially hearing this, um there is a little bit of like occasionalism that pops up where you're like, oh well, if you're grounding this in like God's divine activity, then of you know sustaining his creation ah maybe uh, you know occasionalism but you say that, that uh, theistic conferralism actually protects against occasionalism and deism as like the two kind of ditches that this is the via media through um i guess real quick like what do we mean by sustenance and then how does this protect us from deism and occasionalism yeah sustenance um you know one of the sort of standard doctrines in monotheism is that sometimes it's called preservation, but mm -hmm. that God um, ensures that the contingent things, the creatures continue to exist, right? Yeah. We're, um, if you're not God, then you're not self-existent. Um, and so um, you could cease to exist, right? And uh, it's by God's, um, gracious action that uh, you stay in existence roughly that's so that's um that's a broad notion of sustenance um so here's a quote from um richard swinburne he says god is our supreme benefactor we owe our existence from moment to moment and our powers and pleasures our knowledge and desires to his sustaining power mm. And there are several um, verses uh, in the Bible that talk about this too. So that's that's sustenance. Yeah. Um, the the idea that God holds everything in existence. And um, there's Catherine Tanner drew a distinction between a narrow and a broad understanding of sustenance, mm. and the the narrow understanding has to do with just just. Um, accounting for the existence of things, upholding things in existence. Yeah. Uh, and then the, and Hugh McCann called that 
existence conferral. Okay. So sustenance involves um, conferring the continual conference of existence on creatures. Um, the broader notion of sustenance involves not just existence conferral, uh, but what I call property conferral, hmm. whereby God supplies creatures with their properties from moment to moment. So yeah. you, in the narrow, in the broad, in the, sorry, in the, um, in the narrow sense of sustenance, you owe your continued existence to God, God's preserving action. In the broad sense, you also owe your, um, your character, your nature, you're having the powers and properties that you do uh, from moment to moment. God also is um, involved in seeing to it that you have those things because it's those are also contingent features right not just your existence but you're having the properties that you do and so on yeah and it's a continued uh in under this um schema it's a continued thing that he's continually doing he didn't just set up shop and then it's going on its own right yeah yeah that's that's good that's good so um if i remember it correctly from kevin van hooser's class at trinity it's like you got providence uh you have governance which mm-hmm. God is ruling over. And then a subset of governance, depending on how you parse it is like concurrence, which that's where the Calvinists get in trouble with free will and, and God's sovereignty. That's the one that everyone wants to focus there. And then you have the, yeah. the preservation usually is like the, at least in our classes was like, Oh, of course. Yeah. God, you know, in Christ, all things hold together preservation, no problem. But it's cool that even preservation, you can make, uh, you know, more fine grained distinctions and, and get at, you know, the joints where what's, what's God really doing. And you're saying that, He's, he's conferring our existence, right? Our existence and our properties uh, from moment to moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and you can see this in these, um, there's several quotes I could give you, but the one I gave you from Swinburne, you know, we owe our existence and our powers and pleasures. Yeah. Uh, and the, you see that in many statements of, of sustenance. It's not just that God holds you in existence. It's also right. that, he supplies you continually with your your powers and your your properties and so on. Yeah, and that's that's what I call property conferral. Yeah. Now the the worry though is that um, if you go in for property conferral, that you're going to end up into what people call strong occasionalism. Yeah. The the idea that everything that happens in the world. Um, that all events are sort of directly caused by God. Right. right. And that's, you know, you don't want to go there, right? For obvious reasons, um, bad things happen, evil things happen. And so you want some kind of, you know, uh, you want to leave room for creatures to be the originators um, of some of the things that happen. Anyhow, so one worry then is that property conferral uh, seems to entail a kind of strong occasionalism because mm-hmm. you're saying, well, if God is supplying something with, with its properties, then it sounds like you're saying, so um, God is sort of making something charactered in the way that it is, right? Yes. Yeah. God's conferring here, here's some shape, here's some mass, right? That yeah. He's sort of, you know, making something spherical or making something massive and so on um and if you understand that kind of um if you understand that in an 
efficient causal way, then yes, that does give you this kind of nasty occasionalism. Yeah. Um, my proposal, my proposal though, is that um, if we take property conferral um, to involve formal causation and not efficient causation, mm-hmm. then uh, we can avoid occasionalism. Um, and so more specifically then the idea is that um, to say that God supplies an object with its properties, suppose we're talking about the billiard ball we're saying, look, the billiard ball is spherical and God supplies it with that property. Um, my proposal is that we think of property conferrals, these divine actions of conferring properties um, as modifier tropes. Yeah. So that just is um, the, the, the modifier trope of sphericity just is a divine action whereby, whereby God spherizes, but in a formal sense, not in an efficient causal sense. Yeah. Um, God, God spherizes the, the ball. Yeah. You, um, you, you, um, your talks were so awesome at SCP and uh, you weren't able to, or you, you, you gave a lot of time for questions. So you, you um, didn't go through a part of your, or your PowerPoint presentation and you said, you know, if someone's, someone asks a question, I'll just refer to my thing. And I, and I asked this question here at this point, because I was like, look, this kind of, if it's, if it's in the formal sense, it sounds like God is this passive agent and we're just kind of like stealing from him or forcing his hand. We say it's divine action, but really it's my action, you know, and, and I'm, I'm get, taking these tropes from him. Um, and I was just so excited that you said, well, I have a PowerPoint for that. And I, I, I don't remember the answer because I was so jazzed that I got a good question in on you. <laughs> Um, what, what do you make of that, that objection that like, well, if it's in the formal sense, it seems like God is not taking an active role in, in, uh, preservation. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think there are two questions or worries there. One is that God isn't taking an active role. And the other one is that somehow, um, we're compelling God to cooperate. Yeah with us right and in some bad uh, stuff too right because that, that's what you talked about earlier with occasion like if i have a bad nature and then the next moment he gave me that bad nature again like he could just give me a, a good nature right or something like that right right um so I, I in terms of the um is god implicated here are we um um compelling God to participate in things that are immoral or evil. Is that part of the worry? Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think my view is any worse off than the sort of standard theistic position here where we say, um, so why didn't God intervene to stop Hitler or Putin or whatever? He's like, he could have. He's sort of cooperating with the natural course of events. Why didn't he just sort of take the world out of existence? Hmm. So sort of just pull existence conferral, right? Let's just pull yeah. the plug. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like your worry seems to have just as much teeth for existence conferral as it does for property conferral. Yeah. Um, another way to put that is, yeah. I mean, God is going along with us in a way, um, yeah. but that's not 
a unique implication of my view. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's any worse on my view either. Um, I think it just makes it more clear. And it's the worry that I think you're right that all of us have to deal with whatever your view, but I think on yours, it makes it a little bit more like fine pointed because you mm-hmm. have you know, property conferral and this hammer, uh, God conferred the property of being hard or whatever, hammerly. Right. And I smashed my thumb. And from one moment to the next, if he would have just foregone uh, conferring that property to the next moment, made it uh, or, or uh, exchanged it with a squeaky toy, then I would have hit my toy, uh, my thumb with a squeaky toy. But then again, so I think it's just sharpening and saying, look, this is what we're focusing on all of us have to deal with, but on your view, cause you have property conferral, it just says here, the, the problems made clear. And I think maybe you could just go in for like CS Lewis's stable environment type stuff and go, well, oh, well uh-huh. what would the world even look like if everything turned into rubber duckies? When we we're going <laughs> to ourselves. Right. Yeah. I think that that's the way to go here. I don't, um, I don't see it as a problem. That's especially difficult for my view and not even a problem. That's especially difficult um in general because yeah. precisely because you know like you said um lewis makes a good point about that like we need a stable environment yeah for us to accomplish the goods for god to accomplish the goods that he has for us um hmm. you know and any standard theodicy is going to uh in one way or another i think have to assume that there are goods that god is trying to bring about yeah that are sufficiently great and outweighing uh to make to justify the evils that are necessary to bring them about yeah you know yeah yeah right yeah yeah which is just i think it it, your view just helps us all get clear i think it does sharpen it so it's just see here's what is actually in focus i think that's really interesting because all of us think that god unless you're a deist yeah unless you're a deist you think um god is sustaining creation and so he is sustaining my powers from one if maybe you don't go in for power ontology whatever but yeah. my action you know my action right um but then the, yeah. the second concern is like the jesus in a robe and his robe uh objection like the woman touches his robe and jesus goes whose power went out from my power went out from me who touched me and it's like that but for everything like my i got a haircut or i cut my own hair god's like whose power where'd this power go Okay, so this is the the worry that um, um, somehow God is uh, being compelled to to perform, if I could put it that way, these yeah. formal causes um, to characterize, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm I have a lump of clay and I'm shaping it, and uh, I somehow achieve a perfect sphere in Plato, right? And uh, yeah. right as I get to that perfect sphericity moment, you know, God formally spherizes the lump. Right. Yeah. Um, um, so uh, one, one thing to may, maybe do at this point is just to say, um, think about how this looks on another view. Suppose you have universals, uh, uh, standard kind of Armstrong kind of view where, unless it's assumed sphericity is one of the universals just for the sake of argument, it's, it exists, right. It's available to do its spherizing work. Yeah. Right. And as I get my lump of clay into the shape, like it, 
somehow is what finishes the job or it comes and does its theorizing work. Um, like what compels it? Like what, um, it's not like sphericity as a universal in the Armstrong sense has is paying attention. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of an odd thing that's not explained on Armstrong's view, you know, that, that universals sort of do the work exactly when they're supposed to do their work. Yeah. Um, well, are they, are they causally like efficacious on, on Armstrong's view? No, I, th- I think they're formal causes. Okay. With respect to the, the role they play as universals. Yeah. yeah. So what if it's like, if it's the, the, the directions the other way. So like I'm, I'm forming the clay and then as it's, finally hits that perfect form it just sucks the form down <laughs> you know but, instead of the right, form having what, to pay attention how does that work i mean nah, i don't i have no idea <laughs> yeah so i am just it, it I'm, participates I'm, what about participating is that is that any better like now it's oh, yeah. exemplifying so we say, well now your lump of clay exactly resembles this yeah. you know form of sphericity mm-hmm. um well, for that to work, the form needs to be self-exemplifying, probably, um, okay. for that resemblance to be true. Um, okay. But how is how is that doing any kind of formal causation, like mere resemblance? Um, mm. But honestly, I'm just kind of picking on the the rival view here. So good, I love it. Yeah, that's. And, I'm I'm tempted towards that view, so I'm glad you're, you're picking on it. <laughs> on on my view. Um, you know, yes, uh, God is cooperating constantly, Mm. you know, because everything is constantly in a flux of gaining and losing properties. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we have some kind of resource to explain how it is that, um, properties do the work they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. Um, but in terms of compelling God to to act, so to speak, um, I don't think that that's especially worrisome. I mean, I think God has agreed when he created, when God creates the world, he sort of commits himself to follow certain general policies already, right? Yeah. He's, 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 it's not like he's caught by surprise. Right. Oh, you know, I got to supply sphericity at this point. Um, so I don't think it's, worrisome um, okay I'd, I'd want to know i guess i'd want to shift the burden and say why, why i think this is a problem yeah you know? does it does it commit you to like a strong view of meticulous providence say more like give me an example of well so it uh, seems like sometimes my open theist friends or something we'll, we'll talk about god being like a micromanager or something i'm i'm, I'm a calvinist myself and they go, yeah, you know, he's micromanaging. But on, on this, usually what we, I, perhaps since we're talking about preservation and not concurrence, then it wouldn't matter as much. But it, uh, on this view, everything happens by God's say-so, even, even like my mustache continuing into existence. Ah, but that's most views, right? But But he continually... Mm, there's just something about like God actually doing the work and of conferring it. If there was something like between uh, conferral and 
uh, deism where like God could grant ex- like existence to the world and it, mm-hmm. it could exist while he's just kind of spinning the plate instead of actively going in and, and adjusting all the the tropes. Um, do you see what I'm getting at? Why why someone might think like this is micro micromanaging? Um, I see I see the worry. One thing to one thing you can do is think about how these questions or how these issues look on rival accounts. So yeah. go back to Armstrong's account, right? Mm-hmm. Or what I'm calling Armstrong's account, right? Sure. Just sure. Um, where you have universals, they're non-self-exemplifying. Um, they're sort of waiting to do their work, right? Uh, you know, he, he thinks he... Armstrong accepts the principle of instantiation. So you don't, universals don't exist if they're not exemplified, mm-hmm. but that doesn't matter. So sure. suppose you have five spheres, you know, on in Texas and somebody in New York is about to make a sphere, right? Um, well, so sphericity is, is available to do its work right? yeah. in yeah. New York. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so there's the efficient causal process where if somebody is, shaping the Plato and it reaches a certain moment where the Plato becomes a sphere, right? So the efficient causal process. Um, well, now the universal sphericity uh, does its formal causal work, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I think what we want to say, and but this is something that has to be said by anybody who believes in universals, yeah. Like, what's the order here? You don't want to say it's a temporal priority that the efficient cause, you know, brings about a sphere. And then temporally after that, the formal cause happens. Right. 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 I think what you want to say is that the efficient cause is logically prior to the formal cause. But both causes are doing are at work. Yeah. If there's any kind of lag, that's super weird. Yeah, yeah. you don't. Yeah, uh, there couldn't be a lag. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, honestly, when I start thinking along these lines, I just think, gosh, properties are just weird. Like, <laughs> so weird. Like, why? Why are we going in for formal causes? Like, and um, but yeah, they're weird. And um, I, I've one thing that's happened to me in just proposing this view is it just it makes me reconsider the whole project of going in for property ontology um yeah. you know it's something like well if if divine actions could could be properties then maybe we just don't need properties yeah yeah <laughs> right but my point is on on armstrong's view uh no more or less than on my view you can say that there's a logical priority to the efficient efficient cause yeah right the efficient cause is logically prior to the formal cause um but they cooperate right sure sure it's just that in my view the the, the formal cause is a divine action yeah okay They're both um, at work that's good yeah i like that and 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 there are um uh the properties are are grounded in god's nature right like uh or in in his in his being cuz cuz I know you said you like you're you're partial to Tom Ward's view 
I am partial to his view. I think um, my so my theistic theistic conferralism um, doesn't require right a divine conceptualism. I think it plays well with it. Okay. Um, I favor a view like Tom Ward's view. Okay. With my own kind of you know, twists on it. Um, but that way you have uh, God as sort of the ultimate exemplar mm-hmm. um, and his actions, these, the things I'm calling modifier tropes are in a sense um, expressions of God's character. So each modifier trope um, which formally naturally characterizes an object, yeah, um, is is a an expression of some one way you say some divine idea, but on Ward's way you'd say on some way that God is, yeah, right? yeah um, exemplar, yeah, and I. My own view is that the relationship between um, God's character and the creature's character is not um, exact similarity. Uh, sure. So, you know, the, the idea that, that um, well, being a lion is a natural character, so God is a lion, or yeah. being mud, you know, Tom plays with these examples. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh anyhow we'd need a whole another show to talk sure. about sure. this stuff but um yeah i would i would not want to say that there's exact similarity right i'd want to say that god's way of being um would you say analogous or are you gonna pull in some analogy no i wouldn't say analogous oh, okay. i would i like lewis's c.s lewis's notion of transposition yeah for sure and, I would use that to characterize the relationship between the creature and God. So yeah. um, that's fantastic. I love that you said that. Oh, I love cool. that essay. It's such a good essay. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. I find it extremely useful and um, sorry, everybody for not explaining it. In this yeah, there's it's time, no time. But... Everyone go read. It. I think it's in uh, the weight of glory book, which is a yeah. collection of like five essays of Lewis's, yes. including the weight of glory. Yeah. yeah. So it, a transposition is a kind of um, diluted expression of a richer reality, right? Mm-hmm. So a shadow is a transposition. So if I put my hand up on the wall, you see my shadow, where's nice. my hand? Yeah, you know, yeah. it, a shadow is a transposition of my hand. It It's um, it's not analogous. I mean, to say it's an analogy is not quite right. Yeah. Um, so my own view is that... Uh, Natural character found among creatures, um, being a lion, right, is a transposition mm. of God's character, right? Man, um, that's good. That's really good. I like that. There's, you have to say a lot more, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, uh, yeah, that's good. Um, okay, so there's a there's a couple uh, real quick ones I just want to ask you about. Um, real quick on. I don't uh, want to make you defend Armstrong's view or anything, but on Armstrong's view, 
Um, if we got everything, all the spheres into the sphere museum, and itself <laughs> maybe was even you know spherical, and we blew it up. Our spheres no longer like no one can make a sphere anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the weird things about Armstrong's view, or anyone for that matter who holds the principle of instantiation, yeah, um, you're saying well, uh, the existence of of a property depends upon some object having that property, right? Mm-hmm. So sphericity exists only if there's a sphere somewhere, right? So yeah. you're saying put all the spheres in one room, blow it up, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, what happens to the property? Um, I mean, it depends on your view of time, right? If you're a four dimensionalist ah, about time, then exists somewhere. You know, yeah. uh, that's one way out of it is okay. to pair the principle of instantiation with a kind of four dimensionalism. Huh. But if you're a presentist. <laughs> and Mike Lux, um, I don't know if he ever wrote this up, but he used to talk about this. So Aristotle was a presentist mm. who believed in the principle of instantiation. Yeah. So he precisely has this kind of problem as well. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can't, if you blow up all the spheres, um, you take sphericity out of existence. Can you bring um, it back? Well then, yeah. What happens when you get it's your bootstrapping? You, yeah, you get a bootstrapping. Pull your clay together, and <laughs> it um, just doesn't happen. It just doesn't form into the sphere. Yeah, I, just, ah, I can't get it there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Okay. He has a paper somewhere, I think, where he talks about this. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. that's awesome. All right. So uh, finishing up here, uh, I, I I talked about it in the opening, I think. So I think we're stuck with it. But uh, NFTs, uh, non fungible tokens. I thought this would be a fun one to ask you about because you talk about tropes, and in my mind, they kind of work together. But an NFT uh, is a is a non fungible token. And today it's uh, you can you can get them on OpenSea, which is like the eBay for NFTs. It's this crazy thing. Our background here is all NFTs. I thought that was kind of nice. Um, but it's it's non fungible because fungible is like replaceable um, by a, I, fungible means being replaceable by identical items, uh, mutually interchangeable. And um, I thought this was also fascinating for you because um, you use some stuff from C.S. Lewis to develop this unique maker idea. That, you know, everything is unique or I think you were talking about all of us persons are unique, but I think yeah. you went on to say maybe even everything is unique. Um, so just real quick, uh, is anything fungible? Is anything able to be replaced by identical items and mutually interchangeable on your view? Man, I feel like we're starting a whole new podcast. Here. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. No, Um I don't know. I, okay. My own view is that persons are non-fungible, to use okay. your language. Yeah. Um, they're irreplaceable. N- not even God could replace you or duplicate you on, yeah. on the view I have following Lewis. Um, whether every single thing whatsoever is irreplaceable... Um, I, I'm, I favor that view. Uh, I realize it sounds weird. <laughs> I'm like, really? Every blade of grass or, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, so it depends on what you think um, the objects are that exist, right? Oh, yeah. So, Man, that's a good point. 
if you if you don't think that there are blades of grass, then one less thing to worry about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's part of what that's one of the moving pieces here is um, you know material constitution yeah. and which things exist and so on. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I kind of feel open to it, but not committed on on taking a full scope. Yeah. Well, well, I really, I really, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm also tempted by this view. Uh, it, when you say it, it, you can make it sound kind of flowery and nice and you can put some nice music behind it and sound cool, but you could, all, it's also like this really rich idea that like, I have these two highlighters here and they look totally fungible, but like this highlighter can never, ever be this highlighter. And not only can they not like occupy the same space, but like they, they do have a different causal history and, it depends on what I guess what we mean by fungible, but it's like everything is kind of unique. It's it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating when you think about that, and you just have to pick a, the level of abstraction, I guess. But um, but yeah, the uniqueness maker type stuff is really fun. I, yeah, we don't think we have time to go into all of it, but um, uh, when it comes to like when it comes to NFTs, um, I I saw this connection between an NFT and a trope because a trope is like a theoretical postulate or or a posit, uh. But like an NFT might be like a, a tangible, right? A tangible representation of a trope because it's supposed to be this utterly unique token. Um, so it doesn't even matter if you take the JPEG of it and you download that. It's not the same thing because the blockchain says Robert owns this uh, bored ape uh, NFT. And so it doesn't matter. You can you can make as many copies as you want. But the blockchain says it's not multiply uh, instantiable. So what do you what do you make of that insofar as I've represented NFTs well? Is it like a tangible I know it's not tangible, right? It's so weird to say this, but like a, a non theoretical uh view of a of a trope? Um gosh, it's NFTs are so complicated in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so think about the sense in which an NFT is um non fungible, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's non-fungible if I understand it, you tell me yeah. in the sense that it's got in sort of in, intrinsic to the thing is a kind of um, history of ownership. Yeah. Right. Ledger. And yeah. so um, who has owned it, who's currently owning it and so on. Um, and so if you, sort of duplicate the JPEG, do a screenshot or something. Um, I don't know. There's a sense in which the image is, you can duplicate that all day long. Right. Um, But this history, this track record of it, um, sort of picks out one owner at a time. Right. So there's a sense in which an NFT... It's kind of a something that can't be owned by more than one. Honestly, I don't think when I say person here, because I mean, I think a, a family could purchase something. So, oh, yeah, like, maybe you could you know, even share it. Yeah, you could have like a, a joint ownership of one NFT, maybe. Yeah. So there's one owner, but the owner could be understood as a group, I think. Yeah. Um, functional conceptually, owner. that seems possible. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Um, 
And one thing that's uh, interesting is in terms of uniqueness, what makes an NFT unique is um, the kind of the, what do you call it? The ownership history, like who's owned it? Who uh, you check the you check the blockchain you look at the there's like a digital yeah. ledger yeah 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 this ledger um it sort of is makes it unique um yeah that's one way you, something can be unique is in terms of its uh path through space and time and who's held it or owned it things like right. that yeah um, like a ball hit by babe ruth or something it looks identical right. to the, the one that came off the assembly line but it's got this causal history that's different Right. So that is a way something can be unique is in terms of its um, history, its narrative. Um, but it's not, I don't know, uh, it, whether that's intrinsic to the thing. It seems like, well, the thing could have, um, it's not intrinsic, obviously, but sure. it's not even essential to it. We We conferred it, right? We conferred upon that its uniqueness maybe right the the causal origin of a piece of art may be essentially uh, uh, maybe yeah. essential to it like this yeah. is essentially a rembrandt but the the sort of you know the ledger of ownership after that fact is certainly not essential to it yeah well uh, so fo following that that type token distinction um, like if we go with Babe Ruth's uh, baseball, there's a, there's a type, it's a, it's a baseball. Um, I don't know. I don't know how fine grained to get on that, whether it's like, you know, a Russell ball or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a baseball. And then the, the one that he hit a home run on, that's a token of this ball. And it's different than the other tokens that came off the assembly line, but there is a, a type and it's a baseball with, with an NFT. Um, it's supposed to be like the, the type is the token, I think, right? Like you, you make one picture and you mint that on OpenSea or wherever, and that you turn that into an NFT. And now there, there are no more tokens that are able to be made. I think it's like a collapsing of the type to tope, type token distinction, but, but maybe I'm wrong. What, what do you, what do you think about that? Does that sound right? Well, what makes it, um, uh, in what sense can it not be duplicated going forward? It can't be. Um, you can only you can continually sell that one, but but by screenshotting it, it doesn't do anything. You don't add it to the ledger. You don't add your name to anything. You like own a a, a copy. Hmm, let me think. That's interesting because if you download a JPEG, that's different than taking a screenshot of something, right? Like that's those are two different ways. You still kind of have the same picture, but it's not the same thing. Even those two aren't the same things, right? I don't think so. Yeah. This is weird. This is, we're getting weird here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what is supposed to be something like, well, um, you can't replicate it because only one person can have it at a time. And it's like, it's the ledger that decides yeah. Yeah. who owns it. Yeah. Um, if your name isn't on the ledger, then you don't own it. Even if you have something that's intrinsically the same yeah. as the, the NFT. Yeah exact similarity uh, right it's like exact similarity but without identity yeah i don't know i i i think it's just a convention that makes it we're just hmm. it's a sort of a we're agreeing on well if something has this kind of um 
ownership history, um, we take that to be um, the relevant thing that we value in the object. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I have to think <laughs> more about it. Yeah, yeah, I find the whole thing just bizarre. Um, yeah. It's really interesting, though. It, yeah. And it's a fun... You're not the only... So I gave a talk the other day about the uniqueness of persons, and one of the person in the audience said, so it's sort of like each person is an NFT. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious, man. Well, that's, I feel like that's, I'm gonna have to get yeah. into this. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff I'm. I'm trying to bring up with more of my guests because I, I get these questions a lot. I work with college athletes, and uh, and and this stuff comes up all the time. And so I, when I think about people talking about a public-facing philosophy, part of that is bringing your awesome work, man. You you made up these words, modular, uh, module to- tropes, and modified tropes. I love that. I want to get that out there, but I also want to get their stuff in and ask you. You know, so I, I like this kind of mutual i think that's that's a, a healthy uh public facing philosophy is not just not just one-sided but both ways because either way if it's just the public asking you tell me tell me tell me you'll never work on anything that could be really interesting that's not uh interesting to the public at the time so yeah right. yeah. yeah it'd be fun to do more of that that's for sure yeah yeah um, well yeah well dude this was it's awesome Thank, yeah. thanks so much for all your time, man. I appreciate it. we went we went pretty long here, but I appreciate all your work. Thanks for sending me so many papers and helping me get clear on this. Uh, I'm gonna sure. keep having to read through them to get to get more clear. But tropes are sweet, man. This is fun. <laughs> well, yeah. thanks so much for having me. I appreciate your your interest in my work and give me a chance to ramble on about some of these things. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. Oh, so Robert, before I let you go, uh, where can people find more of your work at? Um, robertkgarcia.com. Okay. Awesome. I'll link uh, that in the description too. Yeah. I have my, most of my papers are there. If, if something isn't there, um, you can email me at uh, Robert underscore K underscore Garcia at Baylor.edu. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. But I'm happy to, I'm happy to um, answer emails or share papers and so on. Awesome. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, that's huge. Uh, that's going to have to do it, folks. We gave you a lot here, so don't don't be whining here. But um, that's going to have to do it for now. This is this was so much fun. I had a great time. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. <laughs>